And then the following Wednesday, we will finish Paul's letter to Philippi. But this will be the last Sunday morning, at least as far as I know, in this marvelous, wonderful, joyful letter. I just want to read a few verses out of chapter 4. So if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 4 and look at verse 2 this morning. Philippians 4, 2. I urge Euodia and Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. One more time. I urge Euodia and Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Father, we pray for our sisters. <laughs> Lord, I am so thankful for your word, and I am thankful that you saw fit to include everything that you did. Every personal nuance, Father, every example, every word that is here is instructive to us, and we are so, so grateful. Father, these words are instructful and practical as far as how to live our lives, how to interact one with another, how to love each other. And we know that that's your heart. So I pray that you will increase, Father, our love for each other this morning and open our eyes to some of these simple practicalities. Lord, I pray that you will bring revelation to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And Father, perhaps even conversation where relationships have gone awry. But whatever the case, Lord, we just ask that you would be at work and we would be open to the work that you are doing in us and through us in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the 4th of July on Tuesday, I'm sure many of you have fireworks in your plans. Some of you, maybe none of you. It's an argument my wife and I have every year. Please let me go to, you know, buy some fireworks. No, you're going to blow your hand off. Please let me go. You know, and usually I'll let her go. (laughs) But you know what? With the current friction that we see taking place between the president and the media, fireworks seems an appropriate term, does it not? I mean, here it is, the 4th of July coming, and we are not celebrating the stars and strife. Some just have a flair for the incendiary, you know. They're a little short-fused. Firebrands who like to spark conflict. I can keep going. They don't discuss, they combust. Okay? They don't debate, they detonate. Having a blast yet? The question, seriously, what we want to deal with this morning, and we see this kind of thing, and and the the vitriol in our society, and the open willingness to slam and rip and tear apart, and it goes all directions. And what concerns me is not Twitter wars. What concerns me is the example that people are learning to live. The example of, of fighting pushing back and and arguing and and, and using incendiary rhetoric. And this just seems to be more and more par for the course. Is that okay? No, it's not. This is not the way of Jesus. And my prayer is this kind of attitude and mentality does not start to really seep into the church. It may yet be one of the reasons why the church is so unique in this world. Why it is different. Why this group of people refuse to engage in such rhetoric. Seriously, why can't we all just get along? March 1992, a drunk paroled felon led the police on a high-speed chase through the streets of L.A. When the 27-year-old African-American taxi cab driver surrendered his vehicle, he at first resisted arrest. However, he was quickly surrounded by four police officers, three of whom brutally beat him long after he was capable of resisting. You know his name, many of you, Rodney King. And this incident was captured in an 89-second 
video from a nearby apartment window. It was released then to news outlets, resulting in national outrage and a discussion about police brutality. King was released without charge, and the officers were indicted, but on April 29th of 1992, when they were acquitted of all charges, the most destructive U.S. civil disturbance of the 20th century, the L.A. race riots, exploded. Three days of rampant disorder, which resulted in over a billion dollars of property damage, 7,000 arrests, 2,000 injuries, and over 60 people killed by the time it was all said and done. In the midst of the riots, Rodney King himself was on the news and appealed to all sides, famously saying, why can't we all just get along? I think most of us probably find ourselves in the gray area today between Twitter wars or riots. It's not one or the other. We're kind of in this place. And so when we come to Euodia and Suntuke in the scriptures, we get it. We can at some level relate. At some point, you've been in dispute with somebody else, be it a family member or a friend or an associate. You've had conflict. It is part of the human condition to experience, to have, to go through conflict. But Euodia and Suntunke, these two ladies tagged as those fighting Philippian females. Forever known. But I think in truth that these sisters got a bad rap. I think that our memory of them, and if you've heard of them before, then you may have had these same thoughts. that Oh, these are the two... These are the two women in Philippi that Paul had to get on to. These are the two who clearly could not get along. Listen, it is absolutely naive to think that Christians are immune to interpersonal conflict. Christians know that. We're all fully aware of our ability to engage in conflict one with another, to have contentious situations. Man, this is life. This is the way it is. Paul himself had such a sharp disagreement with Barnabas that the two missionary compadres had to part ways. You remember that story. Paul had to head out in a different direction taking Silas. Barnabas took Mark and the two went different directions. Although by the time of this writing, the letter to Philippi in AD 62, the two had at least come to a point of respectable if not restored relationship but jesus said in matthew 24 verse 6 you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom in luke chapter 12 verse 52 jesus said from now on five in one household will be divided Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And so this clash between church ladies here should come as no surprise. In fact, what the surprise is, is we don't see more of this in the scriptures. We don't see more of Paul having to tell people to get along and fix their fights. Because you've got to assume that it was taking place. As people gathered together, that there would be differences of opinion. But this is not a church issue. It's a human issue. This is not something that just happens among church people, clearly. But among all people. And so we come to these two ladies, and they are helpful to us in many ways. Their names... Euodia and Suntuke are respectively fragrance and fortune. Or you might say success and lucky. That's another way to translate their names. Success and lucky. Which doesn't seem to be working out too well for them at this point. Look at verse 2 again. I urge Euodia and I urge Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. Please. Ladies, get along. <laughs> he says, I urge you to live in harmony. Notice he uses the word urge twice. So, so he's really trying to compel something here. And I urge you to live in harmony. Live in harmony is just ho-autos in the Greek. It means to be like-minded. I urge you, sisters, be of the same mind. 
It's literally what he says. But instead of being of the same mind, these Christian sisters are actually giving each other a piece of their mind. And Paul has to try to correct this. But you know what? Giving people a piece of my mind comes so much more naturally to me. It is so much easier to have a knee-jerk reaction to lay into someone, lash out. Man, it feels better, at least in the moment, you know, just to fire off. The fireworks happen and we go, ooh, ah. And it's only later that we start to feel like, oh, man, why did I say that? Why didn't I just shut my big yapper? Why can't I control myself? See, that's been the challenge in my marriage for 31 years, that Cheryl's very, very well self-controlled. It's really not fair. (laughs) Because she's never the one who fires off. It's always right here. And at the time, it is. It's a release, you know? The teapot boils and you you open it up. (sighs) You walk away going, yeah, I told her. And then like 30 seconds later... Why did I tell her? I'm just, she just, I'm going to hear this in 10 years. It's going to come back up. Do you remember that time? It's dangerous. A wife with a long memory and very strong control of her tongue. It's not fair. And that's my point. It's not the moment that's the problem. It's the mess that follows. It's the hurt that our words can cause. It's friction that leads to fighting, that leads to factions and fractured relationships and frayed and broken hearts. And so Paul says, look, just be of the same mind. How many times have you gotten into a dispute only to wish later that you could fix it? Be of the same mind. Husbands and wives, how easy is that? To be of the same mind? When she's from Venus? How am I supposed to be like-minded? I mean, that is a tough appeal. How on earth is it possible to be of the same mind with anybody? And yet, this is the constant appeal of the Apostle. He says it over and over. Not just to these two ladies. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. I think that implies don't assume you're always the one who's right. Be willing to admit that perhaps the other person knows what they're talking about. He even follows it by saying, do not be wise in your own estimation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And I'll tell you what, if we in the church follow that one verse, the church would be one massive megachurch on the planet. There would never have been a group who broke off over here or split off in that direction or went this way. Because we all would be of the same mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says, finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Be of the same mind. Man, rationally, I agree. It's a great idea. But emotionally, that's tough. And that's the problem. Where in our history did we ever get the idea that humanity is at all reasonable and rational? In the 18th century, we saw a philosophy rise, a time that is looked back and adored by the erudite and the elite and the highly educated, a time called the Enlightenment. And at that time... Human reason was, quote, the source of all authority and legitimacy. That was the point where people started to say, hey, we can rise above ourselves. We can, by rationality and by reason, be high-minded and rise above the petty things of this world. It was the same attitude that the Greeks had. Didn't work out for them. But in the Enlightenment, we thought, oh, here's the, uh, here's the deal. This is where we arrive. The intellectual elites still see this 
as a glorious turn of events when mankind finally began to realize what we were truly capable of. And yet ever since, humanity in its Tower of Babel pride has believed the lie. And what is the lie? That we are rational beings. We're not. We're not rational beings. You can say, speak for yourself, Pastor, but I'm telling you, scientific research has shown time and time again that we are far more emotionally driven than we are rational. Some studies show as much as a 98% emotion to 2% reason. <laughs> that's, that's pretty scary. And you know what? God put a finer point on the problem. He said in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 28:26 says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your, your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, he says, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. Pleasures, lust, envy, it's all emotion. And we are emotional beings. If it really is 98% emotion to 2% reason, let's just go with that for a minute. I think that sounds rather accurate. But if that's true, then what's the 2% for? Why would God create us this way, 98% emotional, 2% rational? I'll tell you why. The 2% is to learn to trust in the reason of God. It's just enough that we will be just rational enough to stop for a moment and realize there is a ration. There is a reason and it belongs to God. It's called the logos. The reason, the mind, the rationale, the thinking of God. And the logos is perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the reason. And the word was with God and the word was God. John 1, 4 says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 98%. It's that aspect of us that is so emotional, it's not reasonable, it's not thinking, it's not clear-minded. How then can we be of the same mind when so much of the way we function and think and move in this world is emotional? Well, Paul already told us in this letter, back in chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You know, we look at that as a grand theological thing, and it was. He emptied himself. The canoe, we, we studied this a couple of weeks back. He set aside his power. He emptied himself. But it's not just theological, it's personal. We ought to, if we have this mind, be those who empty ourselves. Who say, my opinion doesn't matter here. This relationship matters. My attitude, I'm going to empty that out. My needs, my wants, my pleasures, my envy, my desires, I'm going to empty that out. Who emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can we be like-minded? Well, we start with the foundation of Jesus. And rather than trying so desperately to be like-minded in the way we think, you and I together, instead, we seek to be Christ-minded. We empty ourselves and we humble ourselves. We look to Jesus and we seek in all that we do to pattern our lives, our thinking, our reason after him. We pray that by his spirit we might move the way he does, act the way he does, treat other people the way he does. And the more we focus on Jesus, it's amazing how much more reasonable we become. I can be like-minded with you if I'm seeking Jesus and you're seeking Jesus. 
there's a great deal of reason that then starts to cancel out all that emotionality that otherwise would confuse. And Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 2.16, Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. I may be largely emotional, and again, my wife would tell you I am. But Jesus in me begins to be rational. And you know, I'm not just picking on myself. I, I do tend to be the more emotional one in my marital relationship. Always have been. But the older I get the more even I have become. And it's not because I'm getting older. It's not just age that does it. It's Jesus. And I have experienced and know Christ in me causes the ration to come. It brings the peace. It brings the calm where otherwise in my natural self I would be snapping back. If you only knew. The number of times my natural man rises up to go... And the spiritual says, whoa, remember what you've learned here. Remember who Jesus is. It's Christ in me, Christ in you. All I need is about 2% reason to choose Christ. And once I do, born again, I now tap into his divine enlightenment. Not the enlightenment of humanity, because that's just darkness. Now, with that understood, and Christ as the foundation of all these things, here in this passage there are some marvelous keys. I, I would say a set of keys, more than I have even to cover this morning. We'll cover more of them uh, when we come back to this a week from Wednesday. But keys that help us deal with conflicts as they crop up. Keys that unlock the reason, the mind of Christ in us and the way we think. So again, the foundation is Jesus but if we are to live in harmony, if we are to be like-minded, Christ must be the foundation and we need fellowship. That's key number one. We need fellowship. Watch this in verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I asked you also to help these women. Indeed, true companion. True companion. He's talking to Philippi, and suddenly he goes to an individual. It's the only time this happens in this letter. The rest of the letter is to the church fellowship. It's to his brothers and sisters, the whole collected community. But now, all of a sudden, he's referring to this one person, this true companion. Who is this? Who's he talking to? Now, we can only speculate. We can't be absolutely sure. Many speculations are out there as far as to who this person is that Paul is addressing. The word companion is Susigos. So we can just call the companion Susie. <laughs> Susigos in the Greek that literally means joined or yoked together. True companion. This is my genuine yoke fellow is what Paul is saying. My genuine co-worker. My genuine friend who is with me in this. It's not a proper name. Some have tried to make it a proper name. Susagos, maybe it was someone there in, in the fellowship. But it's never seen in all of the Greek and Roman literature that word, Susagos, is never used as a name. So we don't believe it's a proper name, but it is a word, note this, interesting, that is used to describe and to define Marriage, yoked together, Susagos. It's often applied in Greek literature to marriage, to that kind of yoking together. We would say to the one flesh union. So some early church leaders suggested perhaps this Susagos was Paul's wife. Paul's wife? Yeah. They say it was a woman residing there in Philippi, a woman, they say, who went by the name of Lydia. Remember that Paul met Lydia and some women praying out by the river when he first went to Philippi, Acts chapter 16. And Lydia uh, appealed to Paul and, and Silas and Luke and Timothy and said, come and stay with me. So finally they, they relented and they stayed with her while they did their work there in Philippi. And so there are those who say, yeah, it, it was Lydia. And that's romantic. That's kind of cool. Completely unfounded and unsubstantiated in any literature and any history. All we have is that he met a woman named Lydia and now he's talking to some person named Susagos or that he refers to in this way. 
problem is that Suzagos was in the masculine form, and it specifically indicates a trusted partnership. Now, what about Paul being married? That kind of freaks some people out. Okay, listen, we're not talking about Jesus here. This is not, you know, the Da Vinci Code. We're talking about Paul. Is it even possible that Paul was married? And I will tell you this much, I think he was. Not at this time. But Paul was both a rabbi and a Pharisee. And to be a rabbi and a Pharisee in Israel, you were married. It was, it was almost law. You did not rise to the, to the point of being among the Pharisees without having a wife. Even being a rabbi, to be respected as a rabbi, oftentimes, most of the times, the rabbi had a wife as well, although Jesus didn't. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 indicates that Paul was by then unmarried and probably because he was a widower. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 is interesting, the language he uses, talking to widows, saying, I wish that you would become like me. Well, how could a widow be like Paul unless he himself be a widower? So he probably was married at one time early on, and his wife had passed. And so now Paul is simply married to the gospel and sharing this. So it's probably not a wife in Philippi. Then who is it? Well, it's not Epaphroditus. He's the one who would carry this letter to the church at Philippi. It's not Timothy. He also was there with Paul in Rome. Who could this possibly be? And I'll just suggest this. Of all those who might be in Philippi, who might perhaps have been involved in the planting of the fellowship a dozen years before, who wasn't from Philippi, because this also indicates perhaps was someone who wasn't actually from there, a true companion, the best suggestion I've seen for this is Dr. Luke. That perhaps Luke is the true companion to whom Paul is referring. Whether or not he was is not the point. The point is this. We need fellowship with yoke fellows. That is true companions like the good doctor who will step in and heal broken relationships. We need within fellowship to be willing to step in without stepping on. To step into relationships without stepping in it. You know, to step into relationships without stepping on people's toes. To really seek to to enter into a problem or a contentious situation for the purpose of healing it. For the purpose of restoration. Because that's what true companions in fellowship do. They seek to restore brothers and sisters. Having the mind of Christ provides us with a very clearly defined ministry. And this is a ministry that is for every single person who names Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You don't get a buy on this one. Everybody's in. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. It's not the ministry of opposition. It's the ministry of reconciliation. And it reminds me that our fellowship... Any Christian fellowship must be about restoring relationships, no matter how broken up or how contentious they may be. You see a brother and sister fighting, two brothers, two sisters in discord? Then the call upon us is not to choose sides, but to choose reconciliation. Well, I'm on this side of the aisle. Well, I'm on that side of the aisle. Well, I'm with this person. Well, I'm with that person. Well, that person offended my friend. If we are walking in Christian fellowship, we are all each other's friends. No no matter how distinct we may be or unique we may be, your affinities, your likes, your tastes may be completely different than mine, but in Christ Jesus we are called to be one. So restoration goes beyond how I feel about anybody and goes to the place of saying, if anyone is in discord, my calling is to be a true companion. And a true companion steps in to help these sisters. A true companion enters the fray to help two brothers who are in discord. 
Colossians 1.19 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Jesus to reconcile all things to Himself. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. Now, if Jesus died to reconcile all things, can we not at least be about the same business? If He poured out His blood that we might be restored in relationship to God, how can we not do everything in our power to be about restoring broken relationships? It was God who said in Isaiah 57, 18, speaking of Israel, He said, I've seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and restore comfort to Him and to His mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And Paul grabs hold of that in Ephesians 2.17. and says, peace, peace to those who are far and those who are near. That's what Jesus did. That's what God is about. That's the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ, we have the ministry of reconciliation. And if we have the ministry of reconciliation, we are called to be true companions. We step into the Euodia and Suntuke situations that we might bring our sisters back together. The Lord desires peace. Shalom is not just a Jewish word, it is a Jesus word. And He desires peace for us and with us. He wants us to be in joyful relationship with Him. And so until that final day when we are all together before the throne, worshiping and praising and in fellowship one with another, we need true companions. I need true companions who are willing to look at me and say, Rick, you're not handling this well. Look, this is your brother. This is your sister. Let's see what we can do to restore this. I I will tell you this. This is why when, when we see divorce happen, and we've seen it happen, From time to time. It's taken place with people who are in the fellowship. It's always painful. You all know that. I'm not telling you anything new. But when we see it happen, we have an attitude that we try to remind ourselves of. And I'm talking about with our shepherds and ministry team. And the attitude is we don't take sides. We don't take sides. Because we have a brother and we have a sister who we love. And our goal, A number one, is to seek reconciliation. To seek a restoration. No matter how divided, broken up, or split up the marriage is. Now, I'm not saying that's always possible. Because we're 98% emotion and 2% reason, remember? It's not always possible because the heart is deceitful. And sometimes it gets so broken that despite all our attempts, we can't put it together. But that's the attitude. And that's the heart. Don't ever come to any of our pastors and say, I need you on my side. We'll be on your side. And we will be on the side of the other person as well. We will not take sides. We must seek reconciliation. Why? Because we are called to be true companions. That's fellowship. That's who we're supposed to be. So, we need fellowship of that kind. Secondly, we need a focus. Desperately. He says, I ask you to help these women who have watched this shared my struggle in the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It is really interesting here that Paul names these two ladies at all because he doesn't do that. Rarely, rarely does he do that in Paul's letters. He'll, he'll mention people by name and greetings. He'll mention uh, fellow co-workers of his. But he rarely calls out people for special rebuke. I'm not saying he doesn't. In fact, at the end of 2 Timothy, he nails a couple of people. And he will do it if if the case may be or if the threat is great. But for the most part, when you read through the letters of Paul, he doesn't single people out. He talks to a fellowship together. And he allows the words to the fellowship to then be meted out among all the people. But here he calls out these two sisters. It's unique. What is he doing? Rebuking them in front of everybody at Philippi. Paul, how could you? Listen, this is not name them and shame them. Paul calls out Euodia and Suntuke because he loves them. These are dear sisters. 
of Paul. These are close fellow workers. These are ladies with whom the apostle himself worked, who shared in the cause of the gospel is what he says. We were in this together. We've done this together. So let's set the record straight. Here after 2,000 years, let's understand that these sisters in struggle are truly sharers of the joyful struggle. Paul calls them out because they were in the gospel together. They shared in the, the joy of the gospel along with Clement. Another person he names here, and, and by the way, Clement, early church historians, Eusebius is one of them, who equates this Clement with Clement of Rome, who was bishop of Rome at the end of the first century. Maybe the same man, which is impressive. So, Euodia and Suntuke ought to be, if they're remembered for anything, instead of for their struggle with each other, these two ladies ought to be remembered for their struggle for the gospel. How many people are listed in Scripture who struggled for the gospel? And they are among them. They're listed here because they were all in. Sleeves rolled up, co-laborers with Paul for the sake of Christ and the kingdom. And you know what this reminds me? Sometimes working side by side for the kingdom can itself create strife. Ask our shepherds. And I will tell you, this is the most wonderfully united group of guys I've ever worked with, and yet we have not always seen eye to eye. Iron does sharpen iron, and sparks do fly. But what we have to remember is that what we are about is the gospel. That's our focus. And we may disagree with how to bring the gospel, or how to present the gospel, or how to work for the gospel. We're not always going to see eye to eye on things. Strife will happen in the heat of battle. Sometimes unintentionally we can even wound each other. We call it friendly fire. And I know it doesn't always seem friendly, but here's what happens when we lose focus. And the way to bring us back out of that strife is to regain focus. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And usually one of the brothers, if it's in a a shepherd situation, one of the brothers will say, wait a minute, isn't this what this is about? And bring us back to the gospel. This is why you need a plurality of leaders. Because if it was just me and Glenn, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? (laughs) If it was just me and Joe, we'd get nothing done. We'd just sit around telling jokes all day. Right? Strife is going to happen. We need somebody, true companions, who remind us, hey, this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's get back to that. We need direction. We need a concentration for all of this emotional energy and spiritual passion. And so I suggest the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the joyful struggle. That's the one we're called to. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.8, Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And how many of our interpersonal conflicts, especially in the church, would simply fizzle out in view of that focus? If we got back to the gospel together. Now this is just my opinion and I cannot prove this. But I believe there was a problem with these dear sisters because they lost that focus. Because in working side by side and laboring for the kingdom, they lost focus on the kingdom. Something came up, some sharp disagreement. And now they're having problem even talking to each other. And and Paul says, hey, hey sisters, my fellow workers for the gospel. Be like-minded. You have the mind of Christ. What is forefront on the mind of Christ? The gospel. The gospel is our focus. Their fight was not with each other in the first place. In fact, you know, our fights never are. Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And further down in the same chapter, he says, And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Except for the one you disagree with. You don't have to pray for them. Of course he doesn't say that. We petition and we persevere for all the saints. So what do you do when you exchange friendly fire with a fellow believer? Man, remember the gospel. Remember why we were drawn together in the first place. I kid with Glenn all the time. We have a great working relationship, and I'll tell you why. It's because of the gospel. It's because that shared passion, honestly, that's what drew us together in friendship in the first place. 
was a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what, at the heart of all that we're trying to do as a fellowship, that's what brings us back together. Man, it's for the gospel. You know, life is short. I don't know if you, if you know this or aware, I don't mean to sadden anybody, but Andrew Lefebvre did pass away. After two years of battling with cancer, and his uh, memorial service will be this Thursday at Seafarers Park in Anacortes at 4 o'clock, if you'd like to be there. Thursday, 4 o'clock, Seafarers Park. I, I was so blessed to know him and will be so blessed to see him again. The last time I saw him was Monday before he died. Was it Wednesday morning, Les? Thursday morning. And uh, he, he knew exactly where he was going. Absolutely confident. It, it was funny because with a, a half smile on his face, Andrew even said, it's a little freaky because I've never been there. <laughs> but he knew he would be with Jesus. It was just that sense of what's it going to be? 33 years old. And he is going to live a long life. Because of the gospel. Talking with Melissa and working out plans for his memorial service. She said to me yesterday, we want to make sure we end with an altar call. I said, absolutely. In the past, I might have been like, "Ah, I don't know, it's an emotional situation. I don't know if you want to draw someone to Jesus by emotion. I don't care how someone's drawn to Jesus anymore. I just want them drawn. And I will use anything at my disposal, be it a memorial service or a marriage or anything else, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that's what Andrew would have wanted. Remember the gospel. By the way, there's an even better remember, uh, better reason to think of Euodia and Suntuke. Same reason we remember or think of Andrew. Is that more than all of their kingdom labors, Luke chapter 10 verse 20, Jesus said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Note that at the end of verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. We're not talking about two sisters who are out there, who rejected Jesus and now are out in the world. No, we're talking about Clement and the rest, and Euodia and Suntuke, whose names are in the book of life. They're book of life material. They're there. And we will see them in heaven, and I think Euodia and Suntuke are going to be the two gals with their arms around each other just laughing when we arrive. With Jesus as our foundation... We need fellowship, true companions. We need a focus. And number three, we need a way to function. Look at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, or if you missed it, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That is how we are to function. And I don't know if we do enough rejoicing. I'm not sure if our faces are lit up enough, but this is how we function as followers of Jesus, as true companions of one another. This is how we roll. We rejoice. And I want you to get this, because I had never seen this before, when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, the context is conflict. He brings this up in the midst of dealing with these two sisters. This oft-quoted wonderful verse about rejoicing in the Lord, I now see as an as a antidote to conflict. Why? Because you can't rejoice in the Lord and rip on a sister. Praise the Lord, idiot. Hallelujah, jerk. You can't do it. You can't praise Jesus and pile on a brother. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You're so lame, this all we know. Can, can you just imagine this? Faced with an argument, try busting out rejoicing. I totally disagree with you on this. And you go, i got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And if you can get them to say, where? Then you got them, man. <laughs> to rejoice in the Lord always leaves no room for adversarial relationships. Of course, you know there is an adversary. 
There is one who fights. There's one who contends. There's one who is opposed to. It's his nature. He contended with Christ in the wilderness. He came against Jesus when Jesus was at his weakest point. After 40 days of fasting, Matthew 4 verse 9 says, He said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what happened? The devil left him. And behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. Want to see the devil flee? Rejoice. Want to see the devil weakened? Worship. Want to see the devil run away? Praise the Lord. In discord, against quarrels, in weakness, worship God. Yeah, we need that. We need a function, and that is to rejoice. We also need a feature. Number four, we need a feature. All of this on the foundation of Jesus. Verse five, continuing, he says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Gentle spirit, the word spirit's not there. It's just let your gentleness be known. Let your gentle nature, the feature or quality of gentleness. This word gentleness is coupled three times in the New Testament with the word peaceable. You often see gentle and peaceable together. Titus chapter 3 verse 2. Malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And the word men is anthropos, which means everybody. Couldn't we use a little more gentleness on Twitter? Couldn't we use a little more gentleness just in the world in general? Man, go back to the foundation of Jesus. Was anyone more gentle who described himself, Matthew eleven twenty nine, saying, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is so key because it's in conflict when the harsh comes out in us. It's when I'm contending with another person. I'm anything but gentle. I need this feature. I need this trait to to be worked out and to be continual. Paul says, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. All men. Which tells us this is far bigger than just a tussle between two Christians. And it always is. What do you mean? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You see, gentleness in a relationship is more than just your relationship. Gentleness between brothers and sisters in Christ is much bigger than simply brothers and sisters in Christ. It is nothing less than tragic when disputes among disciples impede faith among the faithless. When our arguments, our contentions, our problems cause non-believers to go, that's why I don't do church. That's why I will never become a Christian. I've seen them. I don't want to be that way when people can't see the father for the followers that's tragic that's why this is so much an issue let your gentleness be known be gentle let it be known to all men john 13:35 jesus made it so clear didn't he by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. The feature of gentleness, it diffuses conflict. It really does. I mean, try it. If you're arguing with someone and you step back and go, okay, I love you. I'm sorry we're not seeing eye to eye on this, but you're more important than the issue. You matter more than I do in this, so how can how can we resolve this together? I mean, that's gentleness. And that it's a character trait, it is a characteristic, it is a fruit, if you will, of the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is in us, gentleness is a feature we pursue. Man, fellowship, true companions, a focus, the gospel, a function, rejoicing in the Lord, and the feature of gentleness. And finally, we need a faith. 
the Lord is near. Look at that. The Lord is near. Four marvelous, wonderful, encouraging, comforting, exhorting words. The Lord is near. We need a faith. Hey, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is near? See, I do. I absolutely believe it. Do you have faith for His nearness? Now, listen, I mean right now. Is He on your row? Is He near to us? I'm talking about the Lord is near in proximity. The Lord is near, Euodia, Suntuke. You guys aren't separated from the Lord by billions of miles of universe. The Lord is near. Look at what you're doing. Look at what's taking place. True companion, help them. Why? The Lord is near. We need gentleness here. Why? The Lord is near. Rejoice together because the Lord, He's, he's right here. I love the psalm. We, we read this last week, Psalm 73, 28. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Doesn't your day get better when you recognize He's with you? The nearness of God. Jesus said, I am with you always. Even to the very end of the age. Which means when you came to church this morning, he came too. He didn't stay home and have lucky charms. He got up. He joined us here. I'm with you. Hebrews 13.5 I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. He's here. The nearness of God is my good. And this means he's got a ringside seat to all my fights. The Lord is near. You know when the kids are fighting and dad walks into the room? And of course, what's the first thing we do? It's what Adam did with Eve. She did it. It's her fault. And then of course, Eve with the devil. He did it. His fault. We freak out. Hey, the Lord is near. And listen to this. This is also in the context of conflict. Jesus said... Matthew eighteen nineteen. If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in your midst. Go look it up. He's, he's talking about dealing with conflict. Where two, two or three are gathered, I'm there. The Lord is near. And remembering, having faith for, the immediacy of His proximity makes a massive difference in all of our relationships. If I know Jesus is with me, I counsel young married couples about this all the time. Hey, the Lord is central in your marriage. The Lord is near. He is with you. He is in this. It's not the two of you alone. It's the three of you together. It's the trinity of marriage, if you will. Oh, I like that. The Lord is near. We don't say, be right with you, Lord. I got to deal with this person. We got an argument here. Hold on there. Jesus got to take down a brother. No, the Lord is near. But no doubt you get Paul's real intent that not only was the Lord near in terms of proximity, but the Lord is near in the parousia. The parousia was that great Greek word that means the coming. The coming of the Lord. Matthew twenty four twenty seven. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man be. Matthew twenty four forty two. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Parousia. Man, the Lord is near in the parousia. The coming of the Lord is near. It is imminent. And when we recognize that and live that way, it changes and affects everything in life. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells a parable. I won't read it, but I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you. He says, who is the faithful servant who takes care of his master's household until his master comes? And he feeds them at the proper time. He cares for the other servants in the household. He's a true companion, we might say. And Jesus says, but beware of that servant in that household who says, my master's a long time in coming. And so he begins to beat and mistreat his fellow servants. Jesus says, there's no room in heaven for that. And he's talking about the nearness of the Lord. When we recognize he may be here any moment. You know, that does change not only conflicts, it changes everything in our lives. 
When I'm making a movie choice as I'm heading out the door, I think, well, do I want to be raptured out of that? <laughs> do I want to be reading that particular book? Oh, Jesus, let me finish the chapter. Fifty Shades of Iron. <laughs> it changes everything. And I'm not talking in a fearful way, but in a reality. When you turn on the internet and you're scrolling around, do you want to be looking at that? When Jesus says, hey, it's time to... Oh, what are you watching? Nothing, nothing, nothing. (laughs) Click. The nearness of God is our good. Jesus is near. Now, some say nearness. It's been 2,000 years. How near can he be? How imminent is that? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. You know that 2018 marks 70 years since the fig tree put forth its branches. Interesting. You know that 2017 is a jubilee year. It's also 5777 on the Jewish calendar. If you like numbers. Interesting. There's so much taking place right now. There's more prophetically we're going to be talking about soon. Taking place in Israel, with Israel, related to Israel. But this nation, as God promised a second time, He would restore them to their homeland. And He did in 1948. And when you see these things taking place, recognize He's near. The Lord is near. This has more significance to us in 2017 than it has in the entire history of the church. Do you understand that? The Lord is near. I believe summer is not only near, but I believe summer is here. How will that affect your relationships? How will that create peace where there was once discord? The Lord is near. And I'll leave you with this question. How do you want to be found when he comes? Fighting? Contending? Disputing? You know what Paul said? Philippians 3.9 I want to be found in him. Best place to be. And it's also the only way that I know of, truly, that we can all get along. Yodia? Santuke, Philippian friends, dear fellowship, in the name of Jesus, be like-minded, live in harmony. That's the message. Would you all stand up with me? In Romans chapter 13, verse 10, Paul said, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He says, do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. How much nearer is salvation this morning? That's good news. Jesus' return is imminent. Be like-minded. Father, thank you so much for the practicality of these words. I now pray that you will put them into action in our lives. Lord, may we be a people who stand on the only foundation, as your word tells us, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Father, a a people who function with rejoicing, with a feature of gentleness. Father, a people who are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. A people who have faith in your coming. Lord Jesus, we need you. We are an emotional people. We are a feelings-based, feelings-driven, feelings-led creation. I'm thankful for that, Lord. You give us the ability to experience love in very intense ways. You give us the ability to rise up on the wings of joy, rejoicing in the name of Jesus. You, you, you created us able to feel things. And even, Lord, to feel sorrow and to know what it's like to be sorrowful and joyful at the same time. You've given us this. These are marvelous, wonderful gifts. And we don't deny that. We thank you for it. 
But Lord, we pray with whatever reason that you have given us that we would have the ability to make the decision to live Christ. To live reasonable as by the reason, the word, the logos of God. We need you. We need you, Jesus, not only to be our foundation, but your spirit to be in us. Your mind to be our mind, our thinking to be like yours. We need to see how you interacted. Lord, to empty ourselves and to humble ourselves like you. And I pray right now, and I I don't know of any, honestly, right now, it's good, Lord, I don't know of any immediate conflicts taking place in our fellowship. I'm sure I've missed a few, but I don't know of any. Lord, would you send each of us to each other as true companions? Help us to seek restoration, reconciliation, to, to restore, and to live out practically and really this love that you have first given us. Thank you for your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.